This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. It's what it is. It is the revealed rest of the story, focusing on Christ as he brings humanity its final judgment and final reward. And in chapter 20, as we come to the end of that chapter, we're actually at the end of the section of Revelation we've been going through now for some time. Revelation chapters 1 through 3 speaks of Christ and his church. Seven letters are seven, sent to seven different churches to encourage them, to warn them. Chapter 4 through chapter 18 speaks of the time when the church is taken out and the Jews and the Gentiles of the future will undergo seven years of tribulation. At the end of which Christ is coming back with his saints. At his second coming, he will destroy all world empires and tyrants. Specifically, the Antichrist and his promoter, the false prophet. And then at that time, he will usher in a literal thousand-year kingdom foretold many, many times in the Old Testament. And yes, even by Jesus himself in the book of Matthew. And that will be an idyllic time. Hopefully you went home last week and read... Isaiah chapter 11, to get a sense of the idyllic time it will be with Christ ruling from Jerusalem, King David resurrected at his regent. It will be a wonderful time of peace and prosperity on this earth as Christ rules personally. But the thousand-year reign will come to an end. And so as we continue to look at the rest of the story, we've come to the end of that chapter. And it's not only the end of that chapter, or the end of the millennial period, but I've entitled the message today, The End of the World as We Know It. Now I realize when I say something like that, eyebrows pop up. People start scratching their head. Because it sounds like something that a crackpot conspiracy theorist would say. Oh, the end of the world is coming. Look out, the end of the age, the end of the period, the end of the world. Because if you go online and Google the book of Revelation, or you Google the Antichrist, or you Google the tribulation period, you're going to get all kinds of stuff. You're going to get all kinds of, of web pages and all kinds of articles. And yes, the crackpot conspiracy theorists are out there with their headgear and everything. And you'll hear all kinds of stuff, but here's what we've tried to do the book of, with the book of Revelation. We have tried to read the rest of the story with a plain, honest, literal approach. What is God really saying? And we have tried to stick with that and bring the message that God has put in that book to all of us. And as Aaron said during the reflection time, we should be grieved for those that are lost. 
Revelation should heighten our motivation to go and tell others about Christ. Because the end is coming. The nearness of the end is, is sooner today than it was yesterday. I'm not going to stand up here and give dates or times or anything like that. I'm not one of those people. But whether we, whether we face God through death or through rapture or through catching away or whatever, we are one day going to stand before Him. And there'll be a reckoning. Now Christ Jesus has already made a pathway so that we might spend eternity with Him forever. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But Revelation chapter 20, the last portion of that chapter, does speak of the end of the world as we know it. As you look around, as you see the world, all the trinkets and trappings of this world, all the hopes and dreams rooted in this world, all the cultures and civilizations of this world, the world as you and I see it, the world as you and I know it, is going to one day end. And what we're going to read about this morning is that end. Jesus Christ is coming back. But when you say that again, people expect you to be walking around town with a sandwich board hanging on you. Saying something like, the end is near. This is what C.S. Lewis said about all this. In addressing the concern of skeptics when they look at us as we preach this as being conspiracy kooks, C.S. Lewis said this. He says, why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? That was his colorful way of speaking of Christ's first coming on the cross, rising from the dead and inaugurating the church. Why didn't he come with an army of heaven and destroy evil? Why didn't he do that to begin with? Well, let's read on. He says, why is he not landing in force, invading the world, invading it? Isn't that he is not strong enough? Does he not care enough? Is he not strong enough? Well, Christians think he is going to land in force. We do not know when, and that's true, we don't. But we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. That's why he hasn't come back yet. That's why we're still in this world. We talked about this briefly in my Sunday school class. Why does God allow evil to exist? Why doesn't God just come back and turn everything around and destroy everything now and make it all right? And there's a reason for that. Most likely it's because he wants to give every person who hears a chance to know Christ. He wants to give every person a chance who will receive Christ to trust him. Again, as we read through these prophecies and these difficulties, God's hand of grace is still outstretched. So as we open up the book of Revelation to chapter 20, we see, yes again, what will be in verse 7 and following, the end of the world as we know it. Because in chapter 20, verse 7, we are coming to the end of the millennial period. The end of that thousand year reign. Why did God do that? Why did Jesus come and set up a kingdom? 
Well, again, he wanted to give people a choice. For the first time in human history, God has ruled the world personally, embodied in Christ. Instead of as an unseen spirit in heaven, Christ himself will sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He will rule personally and reign personally over the world. The book of Isaiah tells us that nations will flock to his feet to hear his teaching. Isaiah 11, as I've mentioned many times, speaks of an idyllic time where there will be no killing, no violence. It's going to be an amazing time because God wants to give yet one more chance in that kind of environment for people to make a choice. And at the end of that time, as we saw last week, he will allow the devil, when we looked in the first part of the chapter, he captures the devil, he chains the devil, and he seals the devil into the great abyss which we think of as hell. But at the end of that millennial period, as we're going to see, he lets the devil loose, and we see the last final rebellion. And so as we open up the scriptures to chapter 20, verse 7, we see this final rebellion as God gives humanity, even in the most idyllic setting, a chance to choose. Because here's God. He is the cosmic gentleman. God is not going to coerce anybody into heaven against their will. He has provided salvation freely to all who would place their faith in Christ. He has literally become not only the door to heaven, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we don't enter into heaven by good works, by religiosity, by moral perfection. None of us would make it. Because we've all sinned. Christ came and he paid our sin debt. He died in our place. And even at the end of the millennium, when humanity has living, lived in the most perfect, idyllic time it has ever been in since the garden, he still offers a chance and a choice. Just like the tree in the, in the garden with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he gave them a choice, eat of that tree and you shall die. It was necessary for him to give us that choice. He wants to be chosen. And even in the idyllic situation of his paradisic millennial kingdom, he's going to give us, or give humanity at that time, a choice. Because see, at the end of the tribulation, the millennial kingdom will begin with all saved. The saints of the church who have been raised, the, the saints who have survived the millennial kingdom, they will all live into the next millennia, or survive the tribulation, will live in the next millennia. And they will live and work and have children, and their children will have children. Until finally, at the end of the millennium, you'll have glorified saints and you'll have earthly saints. And the people will still have a chance to choose. So it says in chapter seven, beginning in or chapter twenty, beginning in verse seven, it says, "Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan, who had been chained, will be released from his prison." It says in verse eight, "And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog." Sort of a reference back to Ezekiel, to the nations that conspired against Israel. Then it's like bringing the old enemies back together. These nations that will conspire against God's people will again be called Gog and Magog. The word Gog means uh, the chief and Magog means his land. 
It says they will gather together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So as we look at this, we first of all see the adversary is released again. He's set free to deceive. And he's moving about the earth, deceiving and bringing deception and raising up a rebellion. One last, one final rebellion. This is why I say this is the end of the world as we know it. Because this is actually, as we read it, the last rebellion that will occur. It will be the end. And he does deceive. We see the apostasy. What is apostasy? If you see someone who is an apostate, what does that mean? An apostate or somebody guilty of apostasy is somebody who has embraced truth and then turns from it. We see that many times in churches today. Or someone who has grown up in the faith, someone who has grown up claiming and professing Christ. But then something distracts them, something disturbs them, something deceives them. And they'll turn away from Christ and walk away from Him. That's what apostasy means. That's what an apostate is. And so he will deceive these nations and the spirit of Gog and Magog who rises up against Israel at one point in history will rise up again against God and his people to gather in, into battle. And their number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, speaking of Jerusalem. So yes, at the end of that millennium, there will be a final battle, a last rebellion. And as we continue looking at that, it says that, uh, I'm having a little trouble with the computer here. Technology is a wonderful thing when it works. We won't have these in heaven, so I'm glad. It says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came from, down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So we see the adversary loosed. We see, we see the apostasy. There will be people who are, even in the perfect kingdom of Christ, who will be swayed. And then they will attack. They will attack. But they will lose. They will lose. Because the Bible says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's going to be a very short rebellion. It's going to be a very short battle. It's going to be over before they know it. As they form up, as they mount up, as they plan to raid and invade, God's going to bring an end to it. It's going to be over. And the last rebellion will be done. It goes on to say in verse 10, the devil... Who deceived them. He was captured and chained and sealed before, but he was let loose. But now, look what it says. Before he was incarcerated, now he will be forever annihilated in heaven. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And notice what it says, and this is difficult to read. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, when we say annihilation, we don't mean that they cease to exist. But they are annihilated in the sense that they will be cast into a literal hell. And they will be tormented forever. How can a God 
do that? How can God send people to hell? Well, people, God doesn't send people to hell. Rebellion sends people to hell. Rejecting God sends people to hell. And there is some gratification. The devil that got all of this twisted and started now will finally get his due. He will now spend an eternity in hell forever and ever and ever. And we can rejoice in a sense in that. Because he has wrought so much pain, so much agony, so much sorrow. He was the first rebel against God in eternity past. When he saw himself as a beautiful creature and decided to, that he wanted to be like God and he rebelled against God. Isaiah 14 tells us that God cast him out of the throne room of heaven. Cast him to earth. That's why when God created Adam and Eve, he was there waiting for them. Misery loves company. So he tempted them and they fell. And humanity's been in rebellion ever since. And now at the very end, in the last rebellion, he raises one more ruckus. But God quickly puts it down and casts the devil, Satan, the old serpent, into hell with the tyrants and the troublemakers. So we see that final rebellion. As we will continue through the book of Revelation in a few weeks, we will see no more rebellion. We will see no more devil. This is the end of evil. What you've just read and what I've just read to you is the end of human rebellion and evil. The demonic spirits will be no more. The devil himself will be no more chained up forever. The final rebellion. And after that, we come to the final judgment. Now, many people in our culture talk about the judgment day. Oh, when judgment day comes, when judgment day happens. And in the reality of scriptural truth, there is not one judgment day. As a matter of fact, as we read scripture, there are several judgments that occur. For instance, at the cross of Calvary, sin was judged. Your sin and my sin, all of the sins that we have committed and will commit, they were judged at the cross of Calvary and defeated. Not only that, but at the cross of Calvary, Satan at that point was judged. Now he wasn't Imprisoned, He wasn't incarcerated yet. We saw that last week. It's still yet to come. God still allows him to move about to give humanity a choice. But Satan was judged on the cross. Satan, as he exists now, lives on borrowed time. The Bible tells us of another judgment when the church of Jesus Christ will be judged. Scripturally, as the, church, as the world is being judged during the tribulation period, we who know Christ as our Savior will also stand before, uh, according to Paul in Corinthians, what is called the judgment seat of Christ. The bema seat, as it's called in the Greek. We who know Christ as Savior, yes, if you know Christ, you've trusted Him, you'll be in heaven, but that doesn't mean you'll escape judgment. We will stand before Christ at that seat, each and every one of us, individually. And the Bible tells us that our lives, after we trusted Him, will be evaluated. 
And those lives will be judged symbolically through a pile of gold, jewels, and precious stones and wood, hay, and stubble. And you and I, as we live our lives, the choices we make as believers, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our finances, the way we spend our energies, what we prioritize and what we push aside, all of that will then be represented at that judgment as we stand before Him. Times wasted, money wasted, things wasted, opportunities wasted, again, will be represented by wood, hay, and stubble. The times that we did honor Christ, we served Him, we gave to Him, we lived for Him, cho chose Him in His way, those, those things will be represented by piles of gold, jewels, and precious stones. And according to Paul, he's going to call an angel. I like to always say he's going to be a fireman angel, but that's a micism. You can take it or leave it. Probably best to leave it. But God is going to strike those two piles with fire. Now, I know we have some pyromaniacs who grew up as kids, like to burn stuff. I was. That's why I have a scar on my thumb. I'll tell you again that story one day. But I know when you put a match to wood, hay, and stubble, it goes up pretty quick. Boom, it's gone. When you burn gold, jewels, and precious stones, they melt, but they purify. The impurities burn away and become more valuable. That's the judgment that believers, you and I, if you know Christ, we will stand before Christ and our lives will be judged that way to determine our reward in heaven, to determine our, our degree of, of, of reigning with him. There will be a judgment in heaven. As a matter of fact, as we'll see a little bit later, there will be weeping and wailing in heaven, crying, because we will see the opportunities that we have missed. And then he will dry all of our tears. That's one of the judgments, the judgment seat of Christ. While we're enduring that in heaven, God is going to be judging the Jews and the Gentiles who rejected Christ through the period of tribulation. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials or bowls. The raising up of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the terror and horror that will be going on in the earth, that is God's judgment being poured out on the planet. That's a time of judgment. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be judged and cast into hell on Jesus' second return. And then there's one more judgment. One final judgment. After the final rebellion, there will be one final judgment. After this, judgment no more. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face earth and the heavens fled away. This has been known, the parlance has been the great white throne judgment. It's been speculated that this throne is white because of God's purity. And it's great because it is where Christ himself will sit and pass judgment. The earth and heaven will flee, will flee because if you remember the earlier chapters, they've pretty much been destroyed by the events of the tribulation period. The seas have been poisoned. The rivers have been poisoned. The mountains have fallen through earthquakes. The earth is going to be wrecked except the place where Christ sets up his kingdom. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Jesus, uh, the Lord's going to remake heaven and earth. But as he sits on his throne to judge, he's so magnificent, earth and heaven is just going to pass away, fly away. It goes on to say this. Who is the judge? It's Jesus. 
As a matter of fact, it tells us in John chapter 5, for the Father judges no one, but has commanded all, com committed all judgment to his Son. Jesus is going to be sitting on this throne. Who will he be judging? Well, let's continue. Verse 11. It says, and as they fly away, there'll be no, found no place for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Who are the dead? Those are the unsaved. The word dead, again, used in Scripture, implies separation. Someone who does not know Christ as Savior is already dead, even though you might be sitting next to them at work. You might drive past them on the highway. They might be in your class at school. They might be in your family. If they don't know Christ, the Bible says they are dead yet in their sins. People talk about the zombie apocalypse and all that stuff. It's fun. It's silly, but it's fun. But the reality is the walking dead in a spiritual sense do exist. Everyone who does not know Christ as his or her Savior is the walking dead. Separated from God. It is Jesus who brings life. It is Jesus who brings reconciliation. The moment somebody trusts Christ as his or her Savior and gets saved, they moved, according to Scripture, from death unto life. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. The dead are the lost. And if they die in that condition without Christ, they are dead for all eternity. Separated from God for all eternity. That's the reality that we don't like to think about, but that's the reality that is painted in Scripture. He said, I saw the dead, small and great. Small meaning the regular people like you and I. The great, meaning the celebrities, the stars, the, the rulers, the pundits, the, the presidents, the kings and queens. Death knows no status. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. What books? Well, he talks about books and he says another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the judge will be Jesus Christ. And the judged will be the unsaved, those who die without Christ. And you probably wonder what happens to those people. This is it. This is what you're going to see. Those of us who know people who don't know Christ, if they don't come to him, this is their fate. And they will be judged and God is going to, in Christ, God is going to use books. One of the books he's going to use is the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, we've talked about that before. Everyone who is born is in the book of life. It's a book of life. You're alive physically. You're born. But there will come a time when somebody will reject Christ and if they die in that condition, they will be blotted out of the book of life. Their names will not be found. And because God is omniscient and all-knowing, he knows who will choose him and who won't. And those who won't choose him 
If they die that way, they'll be blotted out. They will not be in the book of life. When, when the dead are standing before Christ, that's one of the books he opens is the book of life to see if that person is in here or not. And if they're standing before him at the white, great white throne, they are not in that book. But he just, you always want to make sure. He said he opened the books. What other books? Well, it seems that books, and we can only speculate on this. You can take it or leave it. But these books would be perhaps records of their lives as they've lived. See, the church has done a bad thing. As we think of unbelievers and atheists, we like to look down on them and think, well, they're evil. They're bad people. They're terrible. Let me tell you something. Atheists and skeptics and people of other faiths can be just as moral and good as believers can be. And I'll be honest with you, I've met some atheists that are kinder and nicer and more gracious than many Christians I know. Just being blunt. And the Bible seems to indicate that they will be judged to determine degree of punishment out of the books, just like we will stand before God. Even though we'll be secure in heaven, we will not lose our place in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. When you get saved, you're saved. God's not going to take that away from you. But yes, our, our degree of uh, reward and, and status will be determined by the great judgment seat of Christ when he burns the hay and the wood and the stubble and the jewels. Because he's going to look at how we spend our lives. But as he gets ready to commit the dead to hell, it seems that they will also have degrees upon which they will be judged. Sad, difficult part is they will still be in hell. There is no second chance once somebody dies. There is no purgatory in, in, in the Bible. You don't read of that. The reality is simply this. If you know Christ as Savior and you die, you go immediately to be in heaven and you'll be with him for eternity. If you die without Christ, you'll spend an eternity in hell separated from God forever and ever and ever. That's the bottom line. That's the simplest way to understand what we're talking about. And evidently there'll be levels and degrees of punishment. That's again speculative, especially concerning the great, great white throne. Otherwise, why are those other books used? Because he goes on to say, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Again, not to determine heaven or hell. They were already dead. They were already lost. Most likely to determine degrees of eternal punishment. You say, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Maybe if you haven't done much, it won't be so bad. You'll be separated from God forever. There's nothing worse than that. I can't get up here and speculate what hell will be like physically or the physical trappings of hell. The hell, hell is described mostly by Christ in the Gospels. It's interesting how it is described. It's described as a place of great fire and heat and torment. It's also described as a place of utter darkness. Say, Pastor, how, does it, how do those two things go together, heat and darkness? I don't know. Suffice it to say, God described it that way, and that's how it will be. The key is not to let anybody find out. So they will be judged. Are you in the book of life? No. They will be judged according to their works. And after the judgment is complete, 
It says the sea gave up the dead. This is the last final resurrection. You say the unsaved will be resurrected? Yes. They will also receive eternal bodies. And these eternal bodies will go through the torments and separation of hell forever. How do you come to that conclusion? I'm reading what it says. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and hell, that word Hades is a Greek word. If you have an old King James, it will translate hell. The place of the abode of the unsaved now. Death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Remember we talked about the first and second death? Birth and rebirth. Let me remind you, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus. Jesus said, you need to be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand that. Jesus explained to him that that was a new birth that comes from above. When you and I receive Christ as Savior, we are born again. We are now born into God's family. If you know Christ as Savior, you are literally a son or daughter of God in Christ. And because of your faith and because of Christ's death on the cross, you will be in heaven forever. This doesn't concern you and I. But if a person is born one time, so if you're born twice, you only die once, physical death. But if you're born once and never are born again, then yes, you will die twice. What does that mean? It means first you will die the physical death. We all will. We're going to be separate from our body and go wherever eternity leads us. And then secondly, if we, if we die lost, there'll be that second death where finally Christ will cast those into the lake of fire, separating them from them forever. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Death and hell, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How, do you, how are you in the book of life? Well, you were born and you were put there, but when you are born again, you stay there. As I stand before you this morning, I'm no better than anybody else on this planet. No better than you, no worse than you. But I can confidently say to you this morning that my name is in the book of life. Not just because I was born or not because I'm any better or more special than anybody, because I am not. But because in 1978 I sat and I listened to the good news of Jesus Christ. And that night, it was a Thursday night, I placed my faith and trust in Christ as my Savior. And God saved me. My name is still in the book of life. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, your name is going to stay in the book of life. You will not be at this judgment. This judgment is not for the believer in Christ. This judgment is not for the saved. This is primarily and completely and totally for the lost. Again, Aaron spoke this morning in his reflection time about being motivated to tell those who don't know Christ. Let me say something, church. This is why we're here. We're not here to make a club 
out of religion. We're here. God has kept us here so that we might take this good news of Christ to our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors so that they won't have to stand before this great white throne. That's why we're here. That's why, honestly, I don't get too exercised over the stuff that goes on in church a lot of times. As far as, well, I don't like the carpet. I don't like the music. I don't like what Mike and Aaron and Mike wear. I don't like my Sunday school class. I don't like... I don't care, honestly. Because why I'm here is not to make you happy. I'm here to lead you, to serve you, so that we might go out and share the gospel. All of that other stuff is irrelevant and unnecessary. We come to worship this morning so that we might be filled, equipped, and empowered to go out tomorrow morning, this afternoon if necessary, encounter people and share the gospel with them so they won't have to stand at this great white throne ready to be cast into hell. Because that is the destiny of those who don't know Christ as Savior. I'm honest as I can be, and I say this not with anger, but with love. We have lost our priorities in the church of Jesus Christ today. Our priority is to walk with God in such a way that God blesses us, strengthens us, and encourages us so that we might glorify Him not just with our words, but with our lives so that people will come to know him. Why, don't, why do you think God doesn't take us out of the world when we get saved? I don't know about you, but I wish he had. I wish on, 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 on February 21st, 1978, when I placed my trust in Christ, I wished he would have popped me home then. Paul said, I'd rather depart and be with Christ in, first, in Philippians chapter 1. He said, I'd rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he said, nevertheless, I'm here because it's more needful for you. And Paul did not have an easy time of it. But we are not here to have our little Christian club, and I am not the club manager. Aaron and Mike, we are here to tell others about Christ. We are here to bring glory and honor to Almighty God. So we can take as many people as we can with us so that they won't have to stand at this great white throne. It's the bottom line. Listen, I would rather be preaching on the fruits of the Spirit or I'd rather be preaching on the grace of God today. But God put this in the book for a purpose. As Aaron so wonderfully said, to motivate us and to move us to get off our blessed assurance and get out there and tell others about Christ. Churches today, you know how we grow? We trade members. One group gets disgruntled at one church and they go to this church. Or one group from this church gets disgruntled and they go to another church. Why? Because we're acting like consumers picking out our favorite banker pizza joint. When we should put ourselves on the bottom and put Christ on the top and do everything humanly possible short of sin to go out and keep people from standing before this great white throne. Why aren't we doing that? Every penny we spend in this church, we just went through two business meetings. I want to ask you a question, West Concord, and I'm just as guilty as you are, so I'm standing up here. This is a mea culpa. I'm just as guilty. What have we done 
to take our business and make it God's business so we are being a blowtorch for the gospel in Cabarrus County? Why are these chairs empty? What are we doing? I thank God for people who go out and share the gospel. We've got them in here, and I'm not going to point you out, but there are some people who are going out and being involved in ministries or, or local missions or, or just going out as they share the gospel. But listen, one day that's part of our judgment seat of Christ. When we're in heaven and we're going, oh boy, I'm in heaven. Woohoo! I'm here. Thank you, Lord. And anywhere to stand up before Christ, he's going to look down and say, what did you do for me while you were there? You had an opportunity to share the gospel here. Why didn't you do it? Wood, hay, and stubble. You had an opportunity to encourage somebody in Christ. Why didn't you do it? Wood, hay, and stubble. Yes, the Bible says there will be weeping in heaven for a time. The reason why is we're going to stand before Christ and he's going to show us what, how we blew it. Oh, we'll still be in heaven. But the emotional experience of that is something I cannot imagine. When was the last time you sat down with somebody you say you loved and shared the gospel? When was the last time you actually tried to glorify God? And yeah, you may lose some friends. But those, no, those friends, if you do that, they'll never look out from down from hell and look up to you and say, why didn't you tell me? Read verse 15 with me again. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Final. Done. Complete. The judge is Jesus Christ. Not me, not you, Jesus Christ. The judged will be all those who die rejecting Christ. They will be judged out of the book of life, and if they die that way, they won't be in there. And the judgment will be eternal separation from God for all eternity. The final judgment. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, God is going to invade God is going to invade but what is the good of saying you are on his side then oh I'm looking forward to Jesus coming do you know in Zechariah it tells us that Jesus returning the Messiah returning is going to be a dreadful thing even for God's people we think the rapture of the church oh we're going to go up in heaven we're going to have parties and dance the Macarena and everything's going to be great you need to read your Bible. We're going to stand before God, even the saved. Billy Graham is going to stand before God. Mike Farley is going to stand before God. Aaron is going to stand before God. You are going to stand before God, and we will give account. And God isn't going to care about where you sat in the sanctuary. God isn't going to care about how you combed your hair. God isn't going to care about the kind of music you liked or didn't like. He's not going to care. What he's going to do is he's going to look at you and say, what have you done for me? Who did you influence for me? Who's here because of you? That's what's going to happen. So yes, God is going to invade, all right. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole nature, natural universe melting away like a dream? And somebody else's. 
something that never entered your mind or your head to conceive. We get so tied up in this world. We say we love Jesus and we call ourselves Christ followers. Will we continue to be entangled and tied up in this world? Listen, one day this world is going to burn away. Let me tell you something. Those of you who've been around West Concord for a long time, this building is going to burn up, and so is the one on White Street. Everything that you're locked into this world one day will be gone. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, everything around us will melt away in fervent heat. And we're going to stand there shocked. What's going to happen? You say you're on Christ's side, but everything you loved is going to come crashing down. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. Some of us are going to be so tied to this world that it's even hindered people receiving Christ. You say, Pastor, in the church, some people haven't accepted Christ? Yeah, because they're caught up in churchianity and not in true biblical Christianity. And when it all comes crashing down, wait a minute, what? Remember in Matthew, when Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, in one place in chapter 7, he says, Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I not cast out demons in your name? Lord, haven't I not served in your name? Lord, look what I did for you. And he's, you know what he's going to say? He's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity or sinfulness. There's going to be a lot of religious people a lot of church people who are trusting in their churchianity to save them and have never come to Christ humbly, broken, and fall on him as their savior. Lewis goes on to say, it will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. In other words, at that time, you just can't fall on your face and say, oh, God, I'm here. No, no. He said, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen. Whether we realize it or not, now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. Do you know Christ as Savior? Have you trusted him? Not your religion, not your goodness. Oh, I'm good enough. God will let me in. Doesn't work that way. None of us are good enough, including and especially me. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know that if you were to die today or if the trumpet were to blow today, you would be in eternity with him? Do you know that? Oh, you can't know that. Yes, you can. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have everlasting life. I know I have it. I know I'm going to heaven. I dropped dead right here before you. It'll give you a story to tell for a few years. But I know I'd go right straight to heaven with the Lord. Do you know that? You can by confessing your sin, owning your sinfulness, and casting your full faithfulness in Christ. And what about it, my set friend and beloved brother or sister who professes Christianity? Are you walking with him? Because you will be judged according to your life. So yeah, God is not here yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And Lewis finishes this out by saying, God is holding back to give us that chance. This is the chance. Today, right now, Sunday morning, September 10th, 2023, if you don't know Christ, this is your chance to trust Him today. God loves you so much. 
He doesn't want you to stand on that, in front of that white throne. He wants to gather you to himself, come to him and admit your sin, and cast your full faith and confidence in Jesus as your only hope for heaven. And also, my brother and sister in Christ, this is also your chance to decide whether you're going to wallow in self-soaked, self-absorbed churchianity, trying to make a club out of this place to keep you happy, or are you going to fall on the altar of God and say, God, I'll do whatever it takes to bring people to Christ and to bring Christians to a closer walk with you. That's the choice that you will either make or disregard this morning, but now is the time to choose. And Lewis ends this, it will not last forever this time to choose. You may come back next Sunday, you may come back next Sunday, but well, there'll be a day where there won't be a next Sunday, or even a next day. And Lewis says, we must take it or leave it. Some will walk out and leave it. Some will walk out and go through their lives and their friends, family, loved ones, neighbors, relatives. Who will tell them? They're counting on you and me. They're counting on West Concord Baptist Church. People don't care how many covered dishes we have here. People don't care how many societies we have here. People don't care the kind of music we listen to or don't listen to here. People don't care about your opinion and my opinion. What they need is somebody to love them just the way they are, like God does, and to beg them, implore them, to come to know Christ. Today is the choice. Because there is a final rebellion coming. God's going to give humanity one last chance to choose. They're going to, many are going to choose unwisely. And then there'll be a final judgment. And then it'll be it. The end of the world as you know it is in Revelation 20. You now know this information. How will you choose today? Standing as we pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Who do you know that needs to hear the gospel? Have you shared the gospel? Have you been an encouragement or have you been an annoyance? Have you sought to glorify and honor God with your life and choices or have you sought to implant yourself in this world? Every one of us, including me, I have family members that I try to share the gospel with who need Christ. I can't imagine leaving this earth and not telling them. You have co-workers, fellow students, neighbors, buddies, girlfriends, children, parents, that if they were to die today, they would not spend eternity in heaven with the Lord, and they will stand at that white throne. Can you live with that? If you're here and you've never received Christ again, I, I, I have to say it again, God loves you so desperately. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you so much. He loved you so much that he himself left heaven and clothed himself in human flesh. And he allowed that flesh to be abused, beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross. And the eternal God experienced death. Not just death, but a grueling, agonizing, humiliating death. And when he breathed his last on the cross, he had your face in mind. He died for you.
He was buried and three days later he arose from the dead to prove that he had victory over death and he had the authority to give life to all who would come to him by faith. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I'm not going to have an aisle because aisles not going to walk in an aisle doesn't get you to heaven. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, talk to Him and just say, "Lord, I cannot save myself. I am a sinner. We all are. But Lord, I heard that You love me desperately, and Your Son Jesus died for me. He was buried and rose again from the dead. And Lord, the best I know how, I'm going to cast my full faith and reliance." On him. I'm not asking you just believe in him. We're asking you to believe on him, trust on him. And the Bible says that when you do that, God gives you everlasting life. And you're now printed in indelible ink in the book of life. And you will never be taken out. So I hope you'll trust him today. And you will walk with him and share with others that wonderful message. That's why we're here, West Concord. That's what we're supposed to be about. Pray for me as I pray for you that we might work even harder to fill up these chairs in this auditorium, that we might bring people to Christ because that's what we're here for. Father, Lord God, I don't deserve to be up here preaching or teaching. For Father, as far as humanity is concerned, I'm just as broken as everybody else. Father, I have no hope of entering heaven based upon my own goodness, merit, religion, ordination. It doesn't matter. That's why Jesus came. He died for me. He died for these gathered, these listening online or on the podcast. He died for all. He was buried and three days later he rose again from the dead. And years ago when I trusted him, Lord, you gave me everlasting life. Thank you. I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice, either present or online, if they don't know Christ, they would trust him, pull over, sit down, and trust Jesus as their Savior today. And I pray for me and my staff and the deacon body and the teachers and the ministry leaders that, Lord, we'd put ourselves aside, our preferences, our desires. And, Father, we would make West Concord Baptist Church Burn with the gospel and shine with your glory. So that, Father, we might see many come to know Christ. Break our hearts and burden us for that. Because I believe in my heart nobody in this building or on, online wants to see anybody stand before that dreaded great white throne. Because that's the end. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, for additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.